0: Now, without further ado, this episode of the Daily Reprieve.
1: Okay, welcome. I'm going to move the microphone here. Welcome to the We Have a Solution Greater Detroit Spring SA Twelve Step Workshop. This is the 2017 edition. Um, My name is Bob, and I'm a recovering sexaholic. Hi, Bob. And I'm I'm Kevin. I'm a recovering sexaholic. Kevin. Kevin. So uh, Kevin and I presented this workshop together for the first time exactly one year ago after looking at the schedule. So we're here to do it again. And uh, so with that, uh, before we get into uh, the next things, let's observe a moment of silence followed by the serenity prayer. Prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things that I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Thy will <clears throat> not mine be done. So, who's got their white book here tonight and could uh, read the S.A. Purpose for us on page 201? Is there somebody here? i got a white book for you. I'm Adam. I'm a sexaholic. Hey, Adam. Adam. The S.A. Purpose. Sexaholics Anonymous is a fellowship of men and women who share their experience, strength, and hope with each other so they may solve their common problem and help others to recover. The only requirement for membership is a desire to stop lusting and become sexually sober. There are no dues or fees for SA membership. We are self-supporting through our own contributions. SA is not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization, or institution, does not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorses nor opposes any causes. Our primary purpose is to stay sexually sober and help others to achieve sexual sobriety. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, guys. So... Just a couple of preliminary things I want to go over for you. Um, As Kevin said a little bit earlier, you know, this is informal and we're in a really wonderful setting here. Um, So, the thing about long sessions is that, you know, you need to be comfortable. And the reason you need to be comfortable is because when you're not comfortable, now you're missing stuff. So, this is some very important information that Kevin and I have been provided. And we're going to do our best to commute it over to you all uh, because it was re- enormously valuable for us in our individual recovery. And I'm I'm sure you will find the same for yourself. So your comfort is paramount. If you need to get up and go to the bathroom, do that. If you need to get up and, and if you're, you feel like you're somebody that has a blood sugar issue and you need to level out, it, don't worry. There's going to be plenty to eat. So uh we're being well cared for in that department this weekend. So I just want to put it out there. You guys need to be comfortable and uh we'll be taking breaks as needed. Um but you know with that just keep in mind this is this is about being able to pay attention and participate. We're going to have you guys reading some stuff too so um as this goes. But uh the next real did you have any other preliminary remarks you wanted to um. offer? Just along the same lines, you know. Feel free to stand up and stretch whenever you need to. Um, like Bob says, real informal. Not gonna, not gonna disturb us if you, uh, you know, need to get up mm-hmm. and walk around the couch a couple times while we're, uh, while we're talking. Yeah. So also, if you would to uh, mute your uh, mobile devices, if you would, yeah. So that that doesn't show up on the recording. But outside of that, I guess what we're going to start on with uh, the next part here is uh, what is the program? Um, What is the program we call Recovery for Sexaholics Anonymous? What is it? And it starts out in Chapter 5 of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, And I'm going to go to page 58 for those of you who want to follow me. And uh, we're going to read out of page 58. on page 58. So here are a few steps we took as a suggested program of recovery is what it says. Now where is that on here? I'm gonna I'm gonna start I think right at the right at the top of 58 instead and I think the reason I want to do this specifically is that this how it works portion is is crucial I think in in the beginnings of recovery so the top uh, of the beginning of the chapter here it says rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path those who do not recover are people who cannot or will not completely give themselves to this simple program usually men and women who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves there are such unfortunates They are not at fault, they seem to have been born that way. They are naturally incapable of grasping and developing a manner of living which demands rigorous honesty. Their chances are less than average. There are those too who suffer from grave emotional and mental disorders, but many of them do recover if they have the capacity to be honest. So our stories disclose in a general way what we used to be like what happened, and what we are like now. If you have decided you want what we have and are willing to go to any length to get it, then you are ready to take certain steps. So that's kind of the basis. I'm going to stop right there. Um, and that's kind of the basis of, of how we're going to begin this. Um, I like that text because it lays out for you what's available for you. And for me, what I have discovered in recovery is that I've always been able to bank on that. That's the absolute truth. They weren't lying to me when they wrote that. And that's true whether you're alcoholic or sexaholic or anyone, anyone in recovery that's, that's working the program. So the other part of this, though, that I also happen to know is that you guys deserve to know what you're dealing with here. And so to that end... <laughs> Um, I think what we need to start this out with uh, next is is for us to tell you uh, kind of what it was like for us, what happened, and what we're like now. So, Kevin, would you like to do that, or you want me to start? Yeah, why don't you start, Bob? Yeah, know, team me up. Okay, that's yeah. fine. So again, like I said, my name is Bob, and I'm a sexaholic. Um, as as I guess a preteen, teen um, and, and how it went for me um, is that I was exposed to pornography probably when I was 10, 11, somewhere in that time frame, maybe maybe even earlier, and, and it wasn't just so much that I was exposed to pornography, it's that I'm going to be 56 here in October and I still remember that first picture. That's the problem. And, and I, I can't seem, I, I just can't get my head around why that was so important. Why did that image get burned into my skull? I don't know. So what it began, though, once it happened, was now a need, I felt a craving, for more. And so, throughout those next years, all the way through high school, even, I pursued pornography uh, in, a, in a, the way some people collect antiques, you know. And, and it was a big deal for me. And I had to do it all in a closet sort of way because, you know, it had to be behind the scenes as much as possible. And, you know, it was taboo. And so there was the, the thrill of, you know, I guess the what do they call that? The uh, intrigue. Of, of hiding pornography. Um, it's really a pain in the butt. But, you know, nonetheless, it's what I was doing. And, you know, so by the time I was 13, I was, you know, um, relatively... That was a relatively important part of my life. Um, so at 13, um, I'd been pouring a lot of my energies into music, and at that time, we, I was part of a rather large... Um, high school music program, and so the big ticket there, if you're going to be successful, is you got to do a little bit more than the rest. And so I'm doing music camps, and I'm doing private instruction, and you know, and all this. And so I was, you know, first chair trumpet and all that happy stuff. But at 13 years old, while I'm at a music camp, uh, two weeks, I, I pick up a coal and uh, so you know, at that particular location, we we stayed in tents, even though they were on. Platforms, they were up off the ground and they were in, there was bunks in there. But, you know, you were somewhat subject to the ambient air temperature and it got cool at night. So this physician, allegedly a physician, um, didn't want me in that environment because of the kind of cold that I had. And so I had to stay at the infirmary for, for three or four or five nights, I don't know, three or four nights. And which set me up to become systematically molested by this accused, supposed doctor over that period of time. And it's what the psychologists call sexual interference, um, because now it, I am in a sexual act with another person. Even weirder, it's the same gender. Um, going back into it later, even though I struck it from my memory for 20 years. I I get flashes of there was a woman involved somehow. I did not touch her. She was like in the background or something. And it was just a gigantic blow up to my life. And I remember at the end of that week before I went home, uh, walking up and down the pathway at this one area over by the infirmary, swearing to God this would never be spoken of, this is to be put away, this is awful, this is, doesn't fit into my life anywhere, it's got to go. And this huge big mental put that I made, which is the way you respond to this when you can't handle it. And it wasn't until many years later that I even brought that back into my conscious memory. And even drinking excipates, I never forgot anything. I'm not a guy that puts... I don't forget things like that, especially. But I put this one behind. Um, And it came flooding back in a big seminar with about 2,000 people in an an auditorium. I'll tell you that story in a minute. But that was completely weird. But after that music camp at 13 years old, masturbation every day was kind of the norm. And it couldn't stop. And, And that was just what I was doing. And it seemed normal and it was, you know, it was a coping mechanism. And and when I was that age, you know what, maybe it worked. I don't know. I don't know. But it eventually led to a little promiscuity in high school, but I didn't really have intercourse with anybody until college. And that opened up a whole other can of worms. But after college, I, I did two years and went out and worked for three. It got really out of hand during those three years I was working. Um pretty much just seeing women for sex. Wasn't paying for it. Wouldn't do that. Didn't need to. Um, Never thought I'd need to ever pay for sex. Um, And didn't. Um, Then went back to school um, for two more years. And that got, that's when, you know, this is a progressive disease, and I I know that now. I, I wasn't looking at it that way then, of course, because I'm in the midst of it, right? But I can recall a time when I was at college a second time, um, and by then I'd been engaged and broke that off once already. I'd been with, you know, other women that tried to get serious with me, and it just never worked. Um, so now I'm back at school, and it occurs to me a great idea would be to have um, you know, like one girl for every day of the week It's just how bad I got, you know, because I'm the character defects I discover later in recovery are that I'm remarkably arrogant, I'm intensely grandiose, I'm tele A type asshole, and I really have very little regard for other people, and, and so when you pull that into full-blown sexaholism the notion of one girl for every night of the week is really not all that preposterous even though it's outrageous and I'm about three months into this and I'm starting to have a conversation with Thursday that I was talking to on Tuesday and he, she's saying on Thursday, what are you talking about? I don't know nothing about that. And I thought to myself, you know, this would work if they just didn't have to talk to me. If we couldn't, if we, All I'm here for is the sex. If you just would stop it with the conversations, <laughs> I wouldn't be in this problem. That's just how sick I was. If that seems wild and crazy to you, it seemed wild and crazy to me. And, and the biggest Problem with that whole thing is 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 that if I if I sound like I'm bragging here or I'm grandiose, I'm sorry. I, I don't want you guys to think that I'm at all proud of that because it's a very dark time. Um, and the reasons, it, the biggest reason it's a dark time is I look back on this now, and I probably knew during that time a half a dozen of what could very well have been the best candidates to spend my life with that I may have ever known, and I just glazed right over them. I just glazed right over them like a car sliding on ice. I I just had no more control. I was missing it. I was totally missing it. And I wasted their time, and I wasted my time. And it was just, it's just sad. And it just got worse. Um, From there I was, um, I eventually met the woman who was going to be my wife. She was a friend. She wasn't even anyone anyone I was interested in. And while in that state with her, while we were having just the friend relationship, she was hanging around the house because I was off campus and whatnot. She wanted to come over there and study. And I had this one girl hitting on me all the time, and I was, she was just, it was getting old. And so she shows up unannounced at the door, right? So I send my now wife up to the. I just get rid of her. And I never did see her again, thank goodness. But it's like, look what I'm doing. What what the hell is this? You know, it's it's, just—it was just awful. And and I felt hollow. You know, I couldn't seem to fix that. And it was just—I was just wasting everybody's time. I was wasting my own time. And I was trying to pick up women everywhere I went. And it was just all a bunch of—my whole entire life was just a bunch of bullshit. You know. And I—I managed to graduate from college. I didn't have a really good grade point. Later on, I got a kick-ass offer, and I called the guy back from my program. Was the head instructor of my program, and told him about the offer. He says, "Heiser, oh my god, you only had like a 2.8. They offered you that? (laughs) 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 That's amazing, you know." And so it's like here, here I was, you know, I was just bumping along, trying to fake my way through everything, and and this woman that I met. Eventually, I became attracted to her and and I told her when I graduated to leave college I says "You know this is really cool what's going on here because you know she was the only one of the women in that whole string that was my friend for a long time before anything ever came to be in the way of a relationship of any kind of a loving relationship and she kept hanging around and we liked each other's company in spite of the way I was you know and and that had never happened before, and so that that was, of course, you know, I'm going to love cripple. All I'm trying to do is have sex with women. And, and then there's this other problem called a relationship. That's the way I live my life. And only this lady comes in different. And I, I'm about to graduate and leave, leave, leave college. And, and I, I told her, I says, look, I'm not going to be the one that tells you what you've got to do. You're, you're in a program that's going to keep you here for, you know, a couple years or more to come. I'm going. i got a job. I'm going to go to it. So, if you want to come along, that's entirely up to you. I'm not, to have, I'm not going to be the guy that tells you you've got to leave college. If you leave college, I want you to have that be your decision. You know, it's my way of trying not to be responsible here, right? That's what it really is. But on the, other, on the other hand, it seemed like it was fair to me, you know, because I don't want to tell her she has to follow me. I'm going to freaking Oregon. I'm not going across town, I'm going across country. And so I did, and I went out there. And you know, six months into a year stay, she comes and joins me on her own accord. And then a year later, you know, I'm out there a year, and I get a job in where of all places, uh, Lynchburg, Virginia. You know. Sorry, smelled Something Different. Yeah, Jerry Falwell in the in, the, in Liberty University and in, in Appomattox, 26 miles up the road, and so. Um, yeah, I moved myself, lock, stock, and barrel from Portland, Oregon to people in Lynchburg. They don't even know where Oregon is. <laughs> they don't even know that it's a state. You know, they're showing me the mountains and telling me how cool it is out there. I didn't have the heart to tell them. I, said, I had eleven thousand six in my window, man. This is <laughs> I couldn't. I just couldn't do it. You know, and I was, they were so nice to me. I dearly loved Southern people, and uh, so I moved down there. and And my wife got a job in a major printing firm, and she's working afternoons and. I'm working days, and you know I'd come home. We'd have a little something to eat, and she'd go to work, and I'd rent pornography, and I thought I was a free man. And and it was still going on, and there was other people involved, and and it was just awful, and it just this thing just progressively notched me a little bit more each single time. Three and a half, four years later, I get a chance to come move back to Michigan, and by then. I've had a body shop crew who loved me, and I love them. Those guys conferred upon me the highest order a Yankee can ever receive, which is Dixie Fried Yankee. They brought me out in the shop, had a big ceremony. (laughs) (laughs) I'll never forget that as long as I live. What an honor. I I really felt honored by it. Those guys were the best. The best body shop crew a a manager could ever want to have. And uh, they were just, it was awesome to be with those guys. And I went across to Roanoke, I was in Salem actually, I ran a shop there, um, and got a chance to come back to Michigan. And, And so right after that, I went to a retreat, a Christian retreat that I'd heard about and known about for years, and they talked about your ideal, and I'd never heard about that concept before. Your ideal is what is the most important thing to you. And they gave you this little thing, and it said, what do you think about all the time? What do you spend your spare money on? And what do you spend your spare time on? And it just froze me. And even at that, because I knew it was sex. Even at that, it took me eight years to finally get busted down far enough to come to recovery. And so I'll fast forward it a little bit because I don't want to take all night. Thank you. He was reaching for his hook. I knew he was. Secretly timing you. Buddy. I know he was. He always did. Somebody needs to. Uh, but anyway, so fast forward, um, throughout that eight years, uh, I'm married uh, now to the woman who I met in college. And um, we had the first ten years of our marriage without children, and then we began to have uh, our first team after our tenth year of marriage. And by then, I'd been caught masturbating. i have been caught with pornography. I've, um, I've had some bad things, some outside activities that weren't good. I don't really want to get into that. It's not necessary here. But the point is, my life was completely and fully unmanageable, and I couldn't keep it from happening any more than I could keep the sun from coming up in the morning, and I knew that deep down. But it took enough unmanageability for me to finally admit to her when i just, I got a problem, I, I've got a real problem, and I need to get some help. So I found a therapist through a pastor that said, you need to go to SA. And I'd been to therapists. i have been to four different therapists over a six-year period of time, and, no, and the whole notion of sexual compulsivity or any kind of sexual addiction never even came up in any one of those sessions. It was a colossal waste of my time, their time, and all the money. And so I was pretty turned off by therapists. I still am. I think a lot of them are just in it for the money. I don't think they're really in it to help anybody. I really believe that. Um, But there are a few who really are and who really can. That's the biggest problem. A lot of them can't. And, And this guy could. And he called me for what I was the very first time he sat with me. And I heard the words sexual addiction placed next to each other in a sentence describing me for the first time in my life. And I knew he was right. And I broke down in tears. And it still took me two months to go to the damn <laughs> meeting he wanted me to go to. So, anyway, <clears throat> as it went, um, I began to come to SA. And I'll fast forward you through that part too. So, do you want to put put on pause for a minute before we can? We're going to pause right here for a second.